Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, uh, before we jump into today, I've been kind of wrestling all week, like, do I talk about what's been going on in our country or do I not? And uh, I just kind of figured I can't ignore it. So here's what I know. Some of you are visiting with us today. You're new to Kingsway and you don't know anything about me or us. And uh, I just need to ask you for grace. I assume most of the church gives me grace. And so I just need to ask you for a little grace because I don't feel like I have the right words. And I'm afraid I might use a wrong word or say something the wrong way. And so I'm just asking for you to try to understand my heart here. So... I keep reading Facebook and Twitter and all these other things, and I, I, and I grow increasingly discouraged at times by the statements that are made. Now, not all of them. There are some good and healthy. But I think most of us are grasping at straws. How do we feel? What do we do with this? So as your pastor who loves you tremendously, I want to I try to guide you a little bit on how to handle some of these things. So let me just say this, first of all. All lives matter to God. Amen. Now, some of you, I hope, um, are not clapping because you think I'm being pejorative or condescending to the Black Lives Matter. Because the reality is um, we live in a primarily Caucasian country, and racism is not dead, sadly. And I know this because I'm a daddy of an Asian little boy, and people will come up to me in public and make absolutely asinine comments at times. And I know this because I have many family and friends um, who have uh, adopted or have blended families. Some of you here, I know families in this church who have kids who come from India or Europe or Russia or South America or Africa. And if I were to share some of those stories, you would know whether to laugh or to cry. And the reason I say that is some of it is a lack of coaching. So someday I will do you a favor and I will do my best to coach you on how to approach a blended family, okay? That's not today's message. I don't have time for that today. However... Some of it comes from racism. It just does. So please, some of you don't come from the same social class, okay? I realize some of you come from a wealthy social setting and some of you don't. Some of you come from a highly educated social setting and some of you don't. Some of you come from a different color of skin or a blended family or whatever it may be. But the church is supposed to be the one place where it's safe that whatever your external appearance is, it doesn't matter. What matters is what God is doing in your heart and in my heart. So I say that, church, because a few things. Number one, our country is hurting and broken right now. And we have the awesome, awesome opportunity and responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to be a salt and a light. So one of the ways I feed myself as a pastor is I don't get to sit and listen to other people preach to me, so I go and download a whole lot of sermons from some preachers who are far better than me. I could tell you their names if you want to listen to their stuff. And uh, one of the guys who has really ministered to me, his name is Timothy Keller, and uh, I listened to a bunch this week, and I think he was the one that said this, but he said, look, one of the marks of whether you have come to accept Jesus is do you run to pain or do you run away from it? Do you run into the mess? Do you run into the muck? Do you run into the division? Do you run into the places where everybody else says, I don't want anything to do with that? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He stepped out of heaven where he was worshipped as God. He took on flesh. He came and dwelt among us. He didn't even have a, a place to lay his head. He didn't have meals to eat most of the time. I mean, he had to multiply fish and loaves for crying out loud. And he did that because he loves you. And so part of being a believer, and hear this, is to be a people of peace. We run into the pain and into the brokenness, and we seek to bring healing. 
So I love the story. Last week, I, I was uh, kind of coming up this part of the building, up this hallway, and I, I, every Sunday, I go get this, the check-in tags for my kids, and then I make my way back out. Some of you have seen me. I go meet my wife out there, and I help bring our little boys in and um, help get them settled. It's just one of the ways I try to serve my family since I don't get to be with them on a Sunday morning. And as I was walking past here, one of our volunteers, she greets at the door. She grabs me, and she says, hey, I got to tell you this quick story. Now, in my head, I just got done preaching. I'm thinking, oh, I got to hurry up and get back there. So I got, you know, one-track mind. And... Uh, She's like, no, no, you got to hear this. She says, so I was on my way to work the other day, and there was a car accident. And what happens, I guess, this way she goes to work, they move the, the, what are the big orange cone, whatever you call those things are. They move those around, and they had just moved them around, and this lady hits this, this young lady hits this older guy. And she gets out, and she's yelling and screaming at him, and she's making a ruckus. And then this lady from Kingsway walks over and says, ma'am, I don't know if you realize this, but they moved the cones. It was actually your fault. And all of a sudden, the lady just, like, loses it, like, tears flowing, not that any woman's ever done that for. Tears are just flowing, and she's like, my boyfriend's going to kill me, Bob, whatever she said. You know, I wasn't there. And she's going down the road, and this Kingsway person said, ma'am, hang on, take a deep breath. Isn't this great? You're alive. Nobody is hurt. Praise God. Now, when that kind of conversation had ended, if I'm telling this story correctly, the, the older gentleman who got hit, he looked at her, and he said, uh, you go to church around here, don't you? And he said, let me guess what church you go to. And she's thinking, what? And he says, you go to Kingsway, don't you? And then he went on and he said, three times in the, like the last six months, uh, I or a family member or whatever has run into a Kingsway person who has brought peace to a situation where things were out of control. And then he said, I got to go check this place out. <laughs> yeah. I was like... So, I tell this story because I want us to be a people of peace, okay? We run into the pain. We don't run away from the pain. We run into the pain, but we don't run into it judgmentally. We run into it and we bring healing. So here's my wisdom for what it's worth for you. Here's what you do. First of all, can we let the government decide what was right or was wrong? When we read articles or watch things and we get engaged on Facebook or Twitter and we start throwing out judgments, let's let those who carry the burden of judgment be the ones to make the calls on what was right or what was wrong. Let's not judge hearts on any of these sides, okay? Instead, can we throw up a whole bunch of prayers? Paul tells us to pray for those in authority, including your pastor, by the way. Pray for those in authority that they would lead well. Let's pray for those who are going to have to look at these very hard situations that discern good, bad punishments and whatnot and ask for God to give them wisdom. And then, and then beyond that, let's seek to bring healing in any way, shape, or form. Can we lay down our political jargon? Can we lay down the color of our skin, our race, and all these other things for just a moment and say, I love you. I love you. And can we please pray for our policemen? Listen, our policemen, I'm not even going to sit here and say every policeman is innocent and perfect because I know this. And the hearts of all of us, apart from the gospel, we will be corrupt, all of us, me included. So I don't sit here and say there aren't any corrupt police officers. I'll bet that there are, but I don't know who they are. And I'm not going to sit here and point a finger at them when the vast majority of them are trying very hard to serve and to love 
So racism is a dead, and the police are working very hard, and I don't envy either of my brothers or sisters with a different color of skin, nor do I envy the police officer who has to do what he or she does every single day. But what we will do is we will pray and seek to be a people of peace. Amen? So let's do that right now, and then we'll jump in. Father, God, I pray, first of all, for the massive divides of racism in our country. It's been around, Lord, for hundreds of years. And God, uh, right now, even just saying that stirs up emotions in all of us depending on our background and our perspective about the world. But in this building, in this place, under the name and the Godship of Jesus, we stand here united as one. There's no more Jew or Gentile. There's no more Greek or barbarian, male or female. We stand here as one under the blood of Jesus, all desperately needing a Savior. And so, God, it doesn't matter what we look like. What matters is your work in our hearts. God, help us to live that here. God, transform us into the likeness of your Son. May we see this broken world the way you see it. May we run right into it. God, I pray even this week for Kingsway people, as we come in contact, maybe with situations that make us uncomfortable because of our preconceived notions about whatever it is, God, would you remember, take these words, plant them deep in our hearts and in our minds, so in those moments, we would cast off those weights that hold us back from loving others and love freely and openly, God, as you would have us do. And Lord, we pray for our policemen and any others who are sent to protect us and serve us in such capacities. God, we pray for wisdom for them. They make snap decisions in a moment with adrenaline rushing on what they're going to do next. God, please, and especially the men and women who serve here in those capacities, give them wisdom to lead from heaven. God, we pray for the officials who are going to have to look into various things that have gone on in our country and make decisions about right or wrong and punishments. And God, I pray that you would give them wisdom to be fair and just, whatever that means. And God, I pray again. Bring peace to this nation and bring it through your churches all over the United States right now, uniting in prayer. God, use us to be that salt and light. In Jesus' name, amen. So if I go over eight minutes, it's not my fault. All right. My goal would be to get you out of here early today, which means i got to talk in triple speed, which is uh, really fast. So let's go. Now, our series we're starting today is called I Don't Care About You. And you may go, that is like the worst series title ever. Because you thought it when you saw it, didn't you? You're like, what? That's not the message we want to put out. But here's the reality. When I saw it, I thought the exact same thing. I thought, man, I even went to Rhett because he kind of oversees our creative team. And I'm like, Rhett, uh, help me with this one. And as he talked me through it, even though I didn't like it at first, I came to grips with it. Here's why. Because I think it's what many of us say when we don't mean to. Some of us mean to and we just say it. But I think it's what many of us say. I don't care about you. I care about me. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to do what I want, what's best for me or my family or whatever it is. Now, I use this illustration in the first venue. I don't have time to unpack this fully. I read this article on ESPN this week uh, about, from Kevin Durant's dad. Now, look, I want to be clear. I actually kind of think Kevin Durant's dad was right in the big picture of what he said. But how he said it uh, made my blood just kind of curl or curdle or whatever that does. I don't know what blood does. Anyway. Kevin Durant's dad, according to the CSPN article, said he talked, he talked to his son. He said, son, you've been listening to your mom and dad. You've been listening to everybody else. It's time for you to be selfish. And he said that over and over and over again. It's time to be selfish. It's time to be selfish. It's time to be selfish. I honestly don't care which team he went to play for. I just wish he didn't go to play for that team. But it's because I'm a Cavs fan. Um, 
I say this because I wish his dad hadn't said that. I wish his dad had just said, son, you need to seek God and make the decision you believe is best for what God is telling you to do. And I'd have been totally okay with that. But we sometimes say things like, it's okay, you need to be selfish. I mean, I got to tell you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and I don't know Kevin Durant, but as a follower of, Kevin, of, of Jesus Christ, not following Kevin Durant, as a follower, <laughs> I'm a LeBron James fan, I'm just kidding, all right. As a follower of Jesus Christ, is it ever okay to say, I don't care about you? Now, here's the thing. If you're struggling with this, you're like, man, I'm just touching all these nerves right now. I'm just irritating you in every way. Before you leave, let me just tell you, you're in great company. And I want to show you this in the Bible. So go ahead and turn your Bible to Mark chapter 10. That's where we're going to be right now, Mark chapter 10. If you don't know where this is in your Bible, you can download our app in your app store. You can actually get on our Wi-Fi and and, uh, download it right now. Good luck getting cell coverage in here. But if you don't have the app, you can't download the app, you don't know where to find it in the Bible, we'll have it on the screen. And you can go look all this up later. It'll be in the app even later throughout the week. So Mark chapter 10, as you turn to verse 35, that's where we're going to start, but I want to summarize. Notice we're picking up at verse 35. So we're 34 verses into chapter 10 of Mark. When the biblical writers are writing, it's not an accident. They're putting these things together. They're extremely good writers, and they have the Holy Spirit to empower them. So they are excellent writers. And you're going to see this in a minute. Let me tell you what's happened up to this 35th verse. So there's a guy, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, Master, good servant, Lord, what do I have to do to get into heaven? What do I need to do to be right with God? And, And this is my words. But Jesus looks at me and says, well, you know what to do. Follow the law, the Old Testament. And the guy says, I've done all of that. And the first thing you need to know is there's a lot of arrogance there because nobody's done all that. And then Jesus says, okay, well, this one thing you haven't done. We call this guy the rich young ruler because apparently he's got a lot of money and power. And Jesus looks at him and says, you go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And we're told that that guy walks away sad. This is important because right after that guy walks away, because now he knows he can't get into heaven because he's holding on to earth, essentially, What it says next is Jesus is sad because he chooses to walk away from Jesus. Jesus is actually heartbroken. I believe in Greek that word there is the word splagnizomai. It literally means there's a stirring in Jesus' stomach for this man. And the reason he stirred for this man is he knows the guy just made a lifelong decision to choose earth over heaven. He chose these 80 years here over eternity with God there. And Jesus knows it's not going to lead to anything but more pain and more brokenness in his life. And so Jesus goes next, he looks at the disciples and he says, I'm telling you, guys, be careful. It'd be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to get into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are like, well, who could possibly get in? And Jesus says, well, with man, it's impossible. With God, everything is possible. And then he goes on, he says, listen, guys, anybody who gives up fathers and mothers and brothers and and things, they will certainly be blessed in heaven. And he says all this, he says all this, that leads right into a conversation where he says, and now I'm about to model this for you. Literally, he goes at this point, Mark, Mark chapter 10, this would be the verses right before, I believe it would be like verse 28 to 34 there in that range. Uh, he literally tells him in graphic detail, I'm going to go in here, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tried, spit on, flogged, and crucified. It's the most graphic explanation we get of what Jesus is about to do. But they don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. In fact, a couple of the disciples are totally tuned out. This is important. Because we go from rich young ruler, be careful, don't love the world, love Jesus more than anything. I'm going to model this for you by giving up my own life. And then we get to verse 35. And the very first word is, then James and John. Notice this, then. This is important. It's a word in the Greek that actually signifies, Mark wants you to know, on the heels of these things came this conversation. And so this conversation comes, the sons of Zebedee, that's their daddy, he came over 
and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. Okay, what is your request, Jesus asks. Verse 37, they replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. Now, what's going on here? Kings in that day would have chairs, literally, positions of prominence and authority and power and respect next to them, one on the right, one on the left. You can't sit in front of the king. Nobody sat behind the king. There's two positions. James and John are brothers, and they're part of the inner three. So Jesus has many disciples. Sometimes we see 72. Sometimes we see like 100. There's a lot of disciples. Well, out of those many disciples, we have the 12, and you know about them. They're the most important, but out of those 12, we have three, Peter James and John. And this is two of the three. They're closer to Jesus than anybody. They get extra time with Jesus. They get to experience things nobody else gets to experience. So they're pretty puffed up in who they are. And they come to Jesus. Now, Matthew, when he tells a story, tells us they didn't come alone. Their mama, Salome, comes with them. And that she's the one who actually makes the request. I personally think Matthew's trying to cover for his bros. He's like, you know, it was his mama. But there is a, there is a lesson in there, mothers. As you're pushing for your kids to become important and powerful and significant, do not push them past the will of God. And so these men look at Jesus. Hey, would you do us a favor? What do you want? Put one of us on your right and one of us on your left. Now let's see what Jesus says, verse 38. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Now, any of you have kids? When I was a child, I thought like a child. My dad had a nickname for me. His name was Champ. He started calling, calling me that at a really young age. In fact, none of you guys make fun of me for this, right? I was a kid. I didn't buy it. I don't, I don't have to turn in a man card. But I actually had a precious moment poster on my wall. I know. I told you I'm not giving you a man card, all right? <laughs> but I actually said Champ on it. And the reason I said this is because that was my daddy's nickname for me. My, one of my other nicknames my dad had for me was Son, and he still to this day will call me Son. It's a term of endearment most of the time. But then he had another nickname for me. It was Bonehead. <laughs> it was not a term of endearment. More often than not, it was a term I earned when my dad was frustrated with me. What I love is Jesus doesn't look at him and say, you morons, you boneheads. You just heard me talk to the rich young ruler. You just heard me address you. You just heard me say I'm going to die. And you thought this would be the time? Like, are you not paying attention? Are you not listening? Instead, he looks at them and he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with in baptism? I'm just kidding. I added one. It's like the most redundant phrase ever, isn't it? We'll get to that. Hang on to that one. Let's start here for a second. So Jesus says to them, you don't even know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering? What is this cup? If you go back and read the Old Testament, you'll see the cup analogy over and over and over again. The cup analogy stands for the will of God. Normally, it's, 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 it's uh, put in the negative context, though it can be put in a positive context. I believe it's Psalm 22 or 23. David writes and he talks about how joyous he is from the cup, the cup of joy that God has given him. What he's referring to is God is blessing his life and he's experiencing the joy of God. The cup, he's drinking the cup of joy of God. But usually the cup refers to wrath or judgment. So Israel drinks the cup of God's wrath because he told them to repent and he told them to repent and they wouldn't repent. Jesus drinks the full cup of God's wrath. That's why when he's in the garden and he's kneeling down, he has blood pouring off his forehead because he's anxious. And he says, take this cup 
from me. So that's the analogy that's going on here. He's talking about the cup, and he's saying to them, you don't realize what you're saying. The cup of the wrath of God, I'm going to drink it to its last drop. And that leads right into this. So this word baptism, baptism, baptism here, the word baptism in Greek is the word baptizo. You may notice they sound like baptizo, baptism. What happens is when you translate from one language to another, it doesn't matter if it's French or Greek or ancient Hebrew, whatever it would be, you try to find your equivalent word or words that communicate that original word. So, for instance, we have four words for love in the Greek language. We typically only have one word for love in English. You have uh, eros, you have phileo, you have sorge, you have agape. And most often, not always, most often the word agape is applied to the love of God. So this would be like you and you're on your wedding day and you're talking about love and, you know, baby, I love you. I'm going to be with you ever, you know, till death do us part. And you were to look at your bride-to-be and say, baby, I agape you. It's like, what in the world are you talking about? Use English. Like, I did. No, no, you took a word and you made a new word. That's what we did. It's called transliteration. That's what we did with the word baptizo. The word baptizo literally means to dip or to immerse. That's why we practice, practice baptism only by immersion here. You can go back into ancient Greek, you'll find ships being sunk, and they say that ship was baptized. That doesn't mean it became a believer of Jesus Christ. These are ancient Greek writings. <laughs> so when you take this word out, because we just made up a word, and you put in the original meaning, immersion, now read that same sentence. Are you able to be immersed with the immersion of suffering that I must be immersed with. What Jesus is saying to James and John is, you are asking for power and prominence and importance and honor in my kingdom, and you don't realize that in order to have those things, you must walk to a cross with me. So what do you think their response would be to this? It's pretty in your face there, Jesus. Verse 39, oh yeah, they replied, we're able Let's just be patient with them for a minute. We don't have to call them boneheads. The text kind of speaks for itself. They clearly have no idea what they're talking about yet. But Jesus gives them the best pep talk of all time. Here what he says next. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my immersion into suffering. So what is he saying here? Pep talk, beginning and end. You ready? You know what, guys? You're actually right. In other words, what he's saying is, you don't get it today. See, you still think this is about power and prominence. You still think, that's why you're excited. Oh, yeah, we're ready, exclamation point. Send us in, coach. No, 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 you don't realize what you're saying, but one day you will realize it, and one day you will go all in with me. And then he goes on, and he says even further, I have no right to say who's going to sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Interestingly enough, depending on how you interpret these passages in Revelation, uh, depending on who those original 24 seated around the throne are, it's quite possible James and John were there. They just weren't there alone. Moving on, verse 41. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Well, you think? They didn't think of it first. That's really what's going on here. I mean, Peter's about to be left out. He's one of the inner three. There's only one chair on the right and one chair on the left, and Peter has to be going, ah, why didn't I think to ask? And the other disciples are like, well, who do you think you are? And James and John are going, I don't care about you. How could you ever say that about the disciples? 
Because they, like many of us, like me, even at times in my life, have a thick head and don't always get the heart of my father. Don't take for one minute that God doesn't care about you. Oh, he cares about you. It's just he cares about you in a much deeper and more profound way than you have ever realized. How do I know? (laughs) Just keep listening. Verse 42. So Jesus calls them together. And here's a little leadership principle. Whenever there's disunity among you, deal with it quickly. Do not let it sit and fester. Jesus goes right to the heart of it. He's not going to let his group become disjointed. So Jesus called them together and he said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must Be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, what Jesus is getting to here is, in this world, people who end up getting to places of power and prominence and authority, what they will do is use that to get more of their own. So they want to send everybody out to serve them and their needs and their wants, and they gather, and there's greed, and there's selfishness involved. And Jesus says, you want to follow after me, you flip the whole thing around. And then Jesus concludes this whole idea with, how do I know that you can do it because I did it first? In fact, if you follow the story where Jesus goes next to the cross, he ends up in many trials between Herod and between Pontius Pilate. And in those conversations, he says, you do realize this isn't you doing this. I'm allowing you to do this. Wow. There's a statement to the most, one of the most powerful leaders on the earth. Why is he saying that? Because Jesus says, I could call all of heaven, the armies of heaven down right now. I could stop this whole thing like this. I'm going to let it happen. Because I'm going to put you above me. And I'm going to be the example for you to follow. To put your needs above my own. Your life above my own. Verse 46. How does verse 46 start? What word? Hmm. It's almost like Mark wants you to know the sermon illustration isn't over. Then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. Now, what's going on here? As they would go into Jericho, we're getting close to Passover. People would line the streets. As people would line the streets, they would be begging, and especially as Passover would come because there would be more people coming than ever. In fact, in the temple, it's been said that there were roughly 20,000 priests and at least 20,000 Levites, possibly even more, and they would break up into 26 different units, and they would serve year-round. But at Passover, they would all come together to serve because so many people would flood into the town, and they'd still break it up into time blocks. But imagine how many people must be coming if you need more than 40,000 servants to care for all the needs of the people coming for Passover. And I don't know if this is a good illustration or not. I went to Promise Keepers in Arizona maybe 15 years ago. And when I went there, it's like everywhere I turned, there were people begging for money. And I remember saying to something, man, is Arizona always like this? And somebody said, no. Literally, these people, I don't say these people in any pejorative kind of way, people who are begging, they literally will follow Promise Keepers to each of their cities they go to. They find out which city they're going to next and they go because they know that so many of you ministers have soft hearts and will give money. And I said, then why is it every time I go to lunch with another minister, I end up paying? (laughs) Just kidding. All right. In the same kind of sense, the streets were lined with people. So now here's Jesus coming with his caravan, and they're making their way to the city, and people are everywhere, and some are following him, and everybody wants to catch a glimpse, and then take a look at what happens. 
Then they reached Jericho. And as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Shut up. Many of the people yelled at him. At least that's my translation. The same thing. But he only shouted louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I don't know about you, but imagine you've gone to the symphony. And you're sitting there just listening to the music. And all of a sudden, somebody next to you starts yelling, play this song next. Shut up. I paid good money. I want to see what's going to happen next. Play this song next. I'm trying to take a nap here. Would you chill out? Imagine that kind of environment. This guy's being rude. This guy's being obnoxious. There are a lot of people here, Jesus, who are blind or deaf or hurting in some capacity, and everybody wants to see him. We don't want to hear from you. Would you stop it? And then, verse 49, when Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. So Bartimaeus threw aside his cloak. He jumped up, and he came to Jesus. This is powerful to me. Here's why it's powerful. See, some of you have been hearing the voice of God telling you to step out of your blindness and into Christ. Quit holding back. Quit holding on to your comfort, your pleasures, your sin, whatever it is. Give it to Jesus. But there are plenty of other lame people that way on the road who never got healing that day. Why? They didn't cry out for the healing and in faith trust that Jesus is going to bring it to him. Guys, I'll tell you me, okay? I'm just talking about me. Far too often I come to Jesus with one hand open and one hand closed. Jesus, help me free me from this. But you can't have this one. Because I found some solace, some comfort, some joy, some pleasure, some something in this. So here you go, God. Here you go. And blind Bartimaeus. Heal me. Help me. Change me. Just don't leave me. And I'm not dropping it until you respond. I'm not quitting until you respond. I'm going to keep knocking on this heaven's door. Jesus says, bring him to me. And he runs over. And if Jesus, were to, if Jesus not Matt Nickerson, were to show up right now and he were to say, all right, let's do this, would you fly out of your seat? Would you fly out of your seat and say, here I am? Look at what Jesus does. Verse 51. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. I looked this up in the Greek this morning. I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't speak Greek. I could kind of read it, pronounce it, and then look up in a book what it means. When he says, what do you want me to do for you, it's almost word for word in the Greek what Jesus said to James and John 10 verses earlier. You may be like, so? Oh, that's huge. Remember all these then statements? Mark is letting you know, James and John came to Jesus and said, do us a favor. Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And then Jesus said, I can't do that for you because your heart is wrong. You're not lining up with my will. Bartimaeus comes to Jesus. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Exact same question, same word, same everything. And Bartimaeus says, set me free. Give me sight that I might see. And Jesus says, done. In fact, look at what he says. My rabbi, the blind man, said, I want to see. 52 and Jesus said to him, go, for your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. Instantly, the man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. 
Let me be very, very clear, because some of you may be sitting here misapplying this text. I am not talking about if you have enough faith, then whatever ailment you have is suddenly going to go away. What I'm talking about is the difference between going all in with Jesus and going most of the way in with Jesus. Because that's the difference between the two comparisons, James and John and Bartimaeus. How do I know? This takes a little Bible study, a little investigation, but it's pretty obvious, actually, in the text. The guy's name is Bartimaeus. Tell me something. If you've ever read the Gospels, if you don't, you'll have to listen to the rest of us weigh in. How many names of people were healed do you know? Not many, do you? In the book of Mark, I think there's only one other name of a person healed that we know of, and it's in Mark chapter 5, I believe, if I'm saying the right text. Only twice in the book of Mark does Jesus heal somebody tell us their name. Why do we know his name? It's more important than just his name. Not only is he blind Bartimaeus, but he's blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Remember earlier in the text, it was James and John, son of Zebedee. Hmm, that's an interesting little detective work there. Mark is connecting these dots for you. The reason you know his name and the reason you know who his daddy is is that's how you would mark somebody back then. If I were to just say, hi, my name is Matt, so you'd go, who? I'd say, Matt Nickerson. Oh, you're Matt of the Nickerson clans. You know, there's none of us around. But anyway... It lets you a little bit know about who I am. It's an identification. You can know, oh, it's that Matt Nickerson. His daddy is Robert M. Nickerson. What they're telling you is blind Bartimaeus, when it says here that he followed Jesus down the road, he went all the way. In fact, many commentaries, we can't know for certain because he's not talked about in the scriptures, many commentaries believe that he actually became a leader in the New Testament church. Why? Because he threw off his blindness and he went all in with Jesus and he said, I'm going in with you no matter where it leads next. Now realize this, a lame person in that day, doesn't matter if it's blind or deaf or mute or whatever, often couldn't have a family. See, in America like we live today, we have so many resources and opportunities. It wasn't like that then. This guy wouldn't have been able to get a job. His entire life was built around finding a place on the side of the road to beg for someone to throw alms or money at him. And here he is meeting Jesus, and Jesus flips his whole world upside down, and he doesn't get up and go, yeah, I'm gonna go get rich now, baby. He says, I'm going all in with you. I don't care where it leads. I don't care the cost. And so Mark could write this and say, you guys in the early church, you know who this is. It's Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. And they go, oh, that guy? Yes, that guy was healed by Jesus. And not just physical blindness. There's a whole heart healing by Jesus. And I want that for you so bad. I know this, Jesus is patient. Some of you have grown up in the church. Some of you have grown up in Christian homes. You've grown up in the faith. You've been James and John's your whole life. You've been just waiting for Jesus to do something for you. Meanwhile, you need to gaze upon the cross and see him crucified and everything he gave up so you would know no questions, no doubts. He loves you. And out of that love, give him everything. Okay, so I've been reading the book of Ephesians. I'm going to preach on it one day, but it's not going to be this year because I need some time with it because God's still changing my heart with it. But listen, real quick, stick with me. Here's a summary of the book of Ephesians. It's important. I want to read a verse to you out of it. We focus on the second half of Ephesians. You know where, where, where Paul writes, stop walking in darkness and walk in light. Things where Paul says, uh, hey, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loves the church. Hey, wives, submit to your husbands. Oh, man, you guys love that one. We love to read verses where it talks about stop sinning and being immoral and doing all these evil things. But 
That's because you didn't read the first three chapters. Go back and read it later today. Go read it this way. Go read the first three chapters where Paul says, it was by grace you were saved. He redeemed you. He bought you. You were lost. You were without a Savior. And he stepped out of heaven. He came to earth because he loves you. All of these changed life activities don't come to win God's favor. All these changed life activities like living for God and serving for God, they come out of who he's made us in the love of Jesus Christ on the cross crucified. It's out of that that we say you can have my all because you didn't hold anything back when you gave me your all. Now look at this, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Paul says it this way, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. What is he saying? He's saying, you didn't bring anything to this game. And you tried, right? You pushed all your junk in like we talked about last week. You're like, look at all these good things I've done for you, God. And he's like, you're just trying to earn your salvation. And salvation is a free gift from God because he loves I don't know why. I feel like I need to sit on this for one minute. Please give me one minute. I didn't do this in any other service. I just feel like I need to here. Some of you aren't convinced that God loves you. Some of you believe you've gone beyond the grace of God. And some of you are wondering that because you, you're feeling this burden. Like, I can't kick this thing in my life. So God must be done with me. God's not done with you. You're here, right? If nothing else, that's a sign that he's still calling you. He's still reaching out to you. He still loves you. And if nothing else, gaze on the cross. And know he did it because he loves you. And then out of that love, look at this next verse. For we are God's masterpiece. And he created us brand stinking new in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I don't know if when your mommy and daddy got together if you were uh, on purpose or just a holy accident. But you weren't an accident to God. You realize the Bible affirms over and over and over again it's he who opens the womb. I know for some of you, and for my wife and I for 10 years, that created tremendous pain. And that's not today's message, but you need to know there's not a one of you in here that's an accident to him. In fact, before the world was even created, he knew you by name. And he called you into his glorious light. And then he had a purpose for you. And his purpose for you wasn't for you to have a better job or a bigger house or more cars or better vacations or nicer clothes. His purpose for you was this masterpiece that he's weaving together with every man, woman, child in each church around the world to bring hope and glory and peace to this earth because it's a broken place. And we practice here what one day we'll do for eternity there. We practice love, we practice salvation, and we practice worship, and we practice working with our hands. He actually made you for something specific, and I wonder if you know what it is. When I was a youth minister at my last church, I remember two different volunteers did two totally different kinds of work, but they both said to me, Matt, you have no idea how much I love serving at this church. All week long, one guy worked for IBM. All week long, I, I do this. I make widgets. I work on computers. 
And I know it does great things to help people in their workplace, but this, when I'm working to restore families with these teenagers, this, where I'm walking into a life where families really struggling and I'm bringing hope and peace, this, where I'm talking to kids who are on the brink of possible suicide or drugs or terrible immoral decisions, this, this brings me life. Now, this particular volunteer, I was trying to tell to back off because they were burning themselves out. And I said, look, God wants you for the marathon, not the sprint, brother. You've got to slow down. And he said, you do not understand. This brings me to life. And I want that for you. And I promise you, you will not find it in more money and more promotions. Not that those are bad, but you won't find it there. And you know, if you're honest with yourself, you haven't found it there yet. I'm begging you to find your place. And I love what I do, but there are parts of what I do that I hate. And I won't talk about what they are. But the part of what I do that I love the most is this. It's showing up every week. And I get to pray and seek God and listen and learn and, and say, God, what do you want for our church? And then I get to come and tell you what I think God is telling us. And, man, when, when people come up to me and they say, thank you, brother. I needed that this week. Man, it just fuels this fire in my belly because I feel like I played my part in the masterpiece. It's just one small part, but it's my part. And I want you to find your part. So when you leave here today, you may have noticed it's a little different out there. When you leave here today, there are tables and booths set up all over out there. And my challenge to you is two things. Number one, I want you to find your place. You don't even have to know where it is. Some of you, you stepped out of serving for a season. Maybe you needed that, and it's time to get back in. Some of you, you're like, I don't know, am I good at kids ministry or student ministry or worship ministry? I don't know, am I good at greeting people? If you don't know, don't just leave and go, I don't know. Let us help you. You can literally go out there, go to any table you want and say, I don't know. And we have a process to help you find out. I'm begging you, I'm begging you to find your place. Here's why. So that when police officers and people of different races, and even white people who are broken and far from Jesus, and they show up at our church, they show up and they go, oh my goodness, I don't agree with their theology. They think I'm a sinner and need Jesus. But they love me. And it was so obvious they loved me by the way they cared for my kids. It was so obvious they loved me by the way they smiled and greeted me at the door. It was so obvious they loved me. And the world would be transformed by our love. That's one thing I want everybody in here to do, okay? Then the other thing I want you to prayerfully think about. We're going to have three different service projects here on the corner of 10th and Dan Jones. It involves Kingsway Christian School, Kingsway Christian Church together. We want people when they show up to go, not only do they love me, but they thought that I was coming today. We want them to show up and have classrooms that look like we planned for them to be here and bathrooms that are clean and classrooms that are set up for our school. We want them to show up and go, wow, look at these beautiful flowers. We want them to show up and go, these people care about this place. They planned for us to be here. They were ready for us when we showed up. And we actually have projects put together over the next month. Would you go talk to your spouse? Would you talk to your kids? Talk to your life group leader. Talk to the person next to you and say, you know what? I think we're going to sign up. And you'll find this over there. There's a whole thing. It's just called Jerusalem. It's a place for you to sign up and say, I'm going to take part. Where do you need me? Now, here's my little caveat. You could do one or the other, but I want you to consider doing both. Please, don't just go, well, yeah, I can serve one time, I'm off the hook. God maybe called you to serve one time. Maybe that's the season you're in. But my guess is God has called you to find that place that he planned long ago for you. And until you do, you're going to be hurting and we're going to be missing a part of ourselves. So what I want to do right now is pray for you, and then we're going to watch a little video and uh, somebody will come up and tell you the next steps, and we'll be done. Let's pray.
Father, you have created before the world began. And I don't even want to get into how long ago that was. You created with us in mind. (laughs) I can only fathom, God, that back when Jesus was making it all, he was literally sitting here forming this little thing called Indiana and going, man, I can't wait for them to show up and do this thing in that time for this purpose. God, would you stir in our hearts? Would you show us what that is? Give us a heart like Jesus. Help us not to be so foolish, maybe as James and John, is to say, I don't care about you, it's about me. God, help us to be like blind Bartimaeus. And to say, I'm all in, God, whatever you want, I'm all in. Change me, shape me, restore me, renew me. But whatever you do, do not leave us the way you found us. And God, I pray this morning for those who come in with baggage and booth pain, I pray, God, that we would be persistent. We'd keep knocking on heaven's door until you give us that release and that freedom that we might go serve with all that we have. God, I love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. And watch this video.